Thank you for having me here this morning. Thank you for that introduction, too, um, and the beautiful music. Um, it's just wonderful to be here with you all this morning. I want to begin with a story. Uh, in 1968, a Tanzanian marathon runner made history. John Stephen Akwari was one of the four athletes who was sent on the long journey from East Africa to Mexico City in search of Tanzania's first ever Olympic medal. And in the height of the competition, Akwari cramped up due to the high altitude of the city. He hadn't had the chance to train in high altitude in his home country. And at some point in the race, he fell badly. He wounded his knee, dislocating the joint, and his shoulder hit the pavement quite hard. Considering the severity of his injuries, he was asked repeatedly to stop the race, but he refused to do so. Although his body was exhausted, injured, not functioning at optimum levels, his perseverance to finish the race brought him to the finish line. Akwari finished last among the 57 competitors who finished the race. And when interviewed later and asked why he continued running, he said, My country didn't send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. Akwari didn't bring home a gold, silver, or bronze medal, but his perseverance to finish the race brought home a legacy that would inspire millions. Today we're looking at Nehemiah, and we're talking about persevering through trials. And I think Akwari's story fits really well of giving us an image of what persevering through trials can look like. Because persevering in trials isn't about getting a gold, silver, or bronze medal. It's not about finishing first or never looking like it made you sweat. Persevering in trials is about keeping on, keeping the faith. Persevering in trials is about finishing the race. Aquari may have finished last among 57 competitors, but 75 started out. And he was among one who finished. And he was awarded a National Hero Medal of Honor in 1983 for persevering and finishing his race. So this reminds me of a significant person in the stories of the scriptures who actually had a big impact on our story of Nehemiah, but might be someone who goes mostly unnoticed in the story. And I keep thinking of this character in scripture and thinking of the significant role that they played because they were faithful and they persevered through trials to help the people rebuild the kingdom. So before we get to Nehemiah 4 today, I want to talk about this biblical hero and how they persevere through trials and finish their race to help us get to where we are in our story in Nehemiah. So before we do that, I'm just going to pray really quickly, and then we'll look at this biblical hero. Gracious God, thank you for these women. I just ask that you pour a blessing on each and every one who is here. And on everyone who is experiencing trials right now, God, I just pray that you give them rest and rejuvenation, that you give them encouragement, and that you, you speak to them today through the music, through their small group, through our scriptures, that they might have some encouragement to keep persevering. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning I want to start by looking uh, not at Nehemiah, but out the biblical hero, Esther. And most of you are probably familiar with the story of Esther. 
Uh, She was a young Jewish orphan living in exile with her cousin. And the king of that area ordered that all uh, beautiful young virgins be brought into a beauty contest to see who would be his next queen. So she was taken from her home along with the other girls of her age, put through months-long beauty treatments in hopes that they might be found sexually appealing enough to be this man's next queen. And then she became queen and learned of a plot to kill all of her people and had to navigate this new palace life and palace politics to save her people from genocide. And she did that. And she was honored, and her cousin Mordecai became the second in command in the kingdom. But what does this story of Esther have to do with Nehemiah? Uh, many of you might know that the, the books of the Old Testament are not necessarily put in chronological order. So although Esther comes after Nehemiah in our scriptures, the story that happens there actually takes place before what we're reading in Nehemiah. Um, you can see on this chart here that in the bottom right, you see Esther, and you see that it kind of happens at a similar time as Ezra, as what we've been studying and then, but it does come before Nehemiah, and this is kind of a look at what it would look like if the books were put in chronological order. So the story of Esther comes before the story of Nehemiah, even though in our scriptures it comes later. And the story of Esther shares two important elements with the story of Nehemiah that, that influence how we read what we're looking at today. The first is location. So if you read the book of Esther, you see that Esther lives in the citadel of Susa, which is the same town where the king of that time is sitting on his throne. Interestingly, this is also where the story of Nehemiah begins, if you look at the chapter 1 of Nehemiah, in the citadel of Susa. So both of these stories take place in the same location. They also have in common relative timing. I think I have a slide for this, too. Uh, In the story of Esther, the king is named Xerxes. In the story of Nehemiah, the king is named Artaxerxes. And most scholars believe that Xerxes was the father of Artaxerxes. So, these two kings both reigned over Susa and the same kingdom. They were both there in the same palace. And they both reigned, most likely, one right after the other. So the story of Esther comes before the story of Nehemiah. They take place in the same town, in the same palace, and they most likely take place one right after the other. Pretty interesting, right? So there's lots of things we don't know. We don't know things like how old King Xerxes was when Esther became his queen. We do know, though, that she was young. The story says she was a virgin, so she either wasn't yet of marrying age or she was around there when she became queen. We also know that he was older than her because he already had a queen. He had been ruling, and then she was brought in. So it's safe to assume that Esther, if she had had a normal lifespan, was in the palace for quite a long time. Having been queen, even if Xerxes had died, she would have been expected to live out the rest of her days there on the palace grounds. So it's safe to assume that she was around when Xerxes' other wives were having children, like Artaxerxes, who became the next king. It's safe to assume that if Xerxes had died and Artaxerxes became the next king, that Esther lived on the palace grounds during that time. And some scholars have even speculated that the queen mentioned in Nehemiah 2 
as sitting next to the king when Nehemiah makes his request, is in fact Esther. So let's look at that. Nehemiah 2, 4 through 6, the king said to me, what is it that you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah, where my ancestors are buried, so I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, and so I set a time. So some scholars speculate that maybe this queen that's mentioned is sitting next to King Artaxerxes when Nehemiah is asking to go back and rebuild the kingdom, that this is Esther. And they speculate that because they're not quite sure why any other queen would be mentioned. Um, Why this one little sentence and there's no other name and how are we supposed to know who this is? But that would make sense then if there was a tradition of knowing that Esther would have been around. So why does any of this matter? Well, besides being really interesting, I think that it matters because it seems like Esther's perseverance and faith helped her people not only in her own story, but in the story of Nehemiah as well. As we've seen already in our study of Ezra and Nehemiah, King Artaxerxes not only allowed Nehemiah and the people to go back, but also agreed to give them supplies when they were going to go and rebuild. And from what we know of Artaxerxes historically, this is kind of confusing. Why would he suddenly be okay doing this? And why would he have favor on these people? Was it simply because his cupbearer was Jewish? Or was there some other reason? So I don't think it's a stretch to say that Artaxerxes' sympathy for the Jewish people probably had a lot to do with Esther's witness and her character and her story. Whether she personally knew him or not, which I think it's probably likely that she did, he would have been familiar with her story because he was the son of her husband. Esther is an example of someone who persevered through trials to be used by God to continue God's purposes in the world, not only in her lifetime, but long after her lifetime. So let's just think about this. When Esther's story begins, she is a young girl living in exile in a community of her people. She's already been orphaned. She's lost both of her parents. And if that's not enough, then she, along with the other girls in the kingdom, are brought into the palace, taken from their homes, probably against many of their wills. And after she goes through all of these things in the palace, we see God is being faithful to her and protects her, makes her the queen. She finds the plot about her people. She perseveres through all of the things in the palace and saves her people. And then after the death of the king, Esther either outlives him and continues to live in the palace and have an important impact for the Jewish community in that area, or her story lives on and people know and people have a good view of her and people have a good view of the Jewish people. So much so that she gets to save her people not once, but twice. In Esther, we see the value of someone who's persevered in trials, who's left a legacy of faith, and had positive ramifications for generations. Like John Stephen Aquari, who persevered in finishing his race 
After falling and being injured, Esther persevered through being orphaned and exiled and taken and assimilated and navigating politics and being threatened by genocide to finish her race. And like Aquari inspired his people not through coming in first or looking like it, it didn't hurt, Esther inspired really important people to give a great view of the Jewish people and to give them favor so that they could go back and rebuild the kingdom. Esther shows us that persevering in trials is about finishing the race. Her legacy lives on in the story of Nehemiah. So before we took a look at Nehemiah this morning, I just wanted to take some time to talk about this character who is a great biblical hero and who often goes unnoticed in the story of Nehemiah. So just take a minute right now to just think about her and think about this legacy and how she might have had such an important impact in the book that we're studying now in Nehemiah. And then we'll go on and look at Nehemiah 4. So this week we read Nehemiah chapter 4. And I know you'll cover more of this in your small groups, and we went over this in our book this week as well. Um, But I do think that it speaks to our topic today of persevering through trials. So I do want to touch on it briefly. Uh, Max Lucado thinks that this chapter shows us a good picture of what persevering through trials looks like. And I agree. In this chapter, Nehemiah is leading the people in rebuilding the wall of the kingdom, Yet they face trial after trial after trial as they are trying to rebuild it. They are being ridiculed. There's plots to destroy the wall. There's plots to destroy the people. There's attacks from the enemies. And yet they persevere. So I think we see four steps in this chapter for how Nehemiah helps the people persevere in trials. Step one, when learning of the plots against them, Nehemiah instructs the people to reach out to God for help. That's our first step, right? We see this in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. The people pray, Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their, their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of builders. So first, they pray, they pray to God. They ask for help. They recognize that there's a trial coming and they reach out to God. Second, Nehemiah encourages them to keep on keeping on. After they reach out to God, they continue to work with all their might on this wall, at this mission in front of them. They keep building the wall. Verse 6, we see, So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. So they reach out to God, and they are encouraged to keep on going. The third thing I see here is that as things get more difficult, 
and more trials come. Nehemiah continues to reach out to God as he sets up day and night defenses for the people. In verse 8, we see that they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. What I love about this is Nehemiah is reaching out to God, but he also knows that he needs to set up defenses for his people. This isn't a one or the other kind of thing. We need to be reaching out to God, to asking for God's help, but some situations we need to also be setting up defenses, sometimes day and night, against the persevering, pers- so we can persevere through the trials that are coming. And fourth, I see that Nehemiah encourages the people to trust in the promises of God. In verse 14, we see, After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your families and your sons and daughters and your wives and your homes. So things get even worse. And yet uh, Nehemiah knows that they are in the middle of a promise of God coming true. God has promised that the kingdom will be rebuilt. And Nehemiah recognizes that that promise is true and that what Yahweh says will come to pass. So he trusts in that promise. And he encourages the people to take heart because he knows that they're going to see it come true. So I see these four steps, and I think that that has a lot to teach us as well. What does this this chapter in Nehemiah teach us specifically about persevering in trials? Because our context is quite different. I think step number one, this teaches us when trials come our way, we can reach out to God, who is our help. I think even as we keep on keeping on, we can reach out to God. As we are persevering, as we keep taking the steps, as we keep walking in the mission that God has put before us. And as more trials come, I see that we can set up our defenses as we lean on God. Our defenses might look different because we are not in a time of war or rebuilding a wall. But I think of defenses like scripture and the community of the faithful, and good friends, and family, and prayer, and spiritual practices. These things that keep us tethered to God, and to other people, to have our defenses around us. Uh, My friend Karen did this really well. Her husband was diagnosed with cancer, and during the hard part of her treatment, she created a schedule and asked her family, and her friends, and her colleagues to take a certain amount of hours throughout the schedule, so that day and night... We were praying for him. We were praying for his treatment. And for a good week, every minute of the day was accounted for with someone praying. I feel like that's setting up defenses. My friend Janelle did something similar with asking friends and family when she was ill to to take a day within a month. And so every day someone was praying for her family during this hard month. And then I see that we can trust in and take encouragement from the promises of God. Nehemiah took encouragement from the promise that God would rebuild God's kingdom. And we have promises in scripture that we can lean on as well through trials. Here are just a few. One of them that I really look to a lot is God is good all the time. We get this from Psalm 100 verse 5 and actually from quite a few other verses But Psalm 100 verse 5 says, For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. 
God's faithfulness continues throughout all generations. That's a promise that we can always rely on. When life isn't good and we can be assured that God is. The second promise is that nothing will separate us from the love of God. We get this from Romans 8, 38 and 39. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. (laughs) Talk about a good promise, right? Another promise I continually lean on is that God's love can cast out fear. We get this from 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. And what I love about this in the, in the picture of 1 John is that it's not that we won't feel the fear, but that we know that we have God with us to help us push through that, to help push that out so it doesn't have the power over us to keep us immobilized. And the last promise that I was thinking that I, I lean on often is that no matter what else happens, God is with me. And there are actually a lot of verses for this as well, but I like the words of Jesus in Matthew 28. Surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. And Jesus says this to the disciples, even as he knows he's going back into heaven. He's not going to be physically with them, but that promise that where the disciples are, where the disciples of Jesus are, Jesus is there with us. We can hold on to that as well. So as the people of God, we don't get an out of all these difficult things in life. We don't cling to God because God's going to save us from every trial or we don't experience hardship. But we do know that as the people of God, we can lean on these promises that God is good and nothing can separate us from God's love and God's love can cast out fear and God is always with us in the midst of the trials that we are going to face. God's promises can help us persevere to finish our race. So I know we've covered a lot in a short amount of time. But my hope is that you found some encouragement from some of this. Whether it's from the model of persevering through trials that we see in Esther, or the often hidden role that Esther plays in helping the people rebuild the kingdom, or in the ways that Nehemiah encourages the people to push through their trials and rebuilding the wall. Because persevering in trials isn't about getting a gold, silver, or bronze medal. It's not about coming in first or looking like you don't sweat it. It's not about looking like it's not difficult. Persevering in trials is about finishing the race, as John Stephen Aquari would say. So do not be discouraged if when you face trials you feel like you're barely hanging on. As Pastor Tim reminded us two Sundays ago, it's not about the size of your faith. It's about the perseverance of your faith. Faith the size of a mustard seed brings glory to God. It's the length of your faith, persevering with it throughout these trials. And persevering through trials looks not necessarily like never wavering or having a hard time or never doubting, but in holding on and 
persevering through it and finishing our race. May we be like, may we be people like John Stephen Aquari who see the value in finishing the race. May we be people like Esther who persevere through trials to be used by God to bring about God's purposes. And may we be like Nehemiah, who when trials come, we reach out to God, and we keep on keeping on, and we set up our defenses, and we lean on the promises of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you. Thank you for this time together in your word. Thank you for this time together as a fellowship. Help us as we face the various trials that are already coming at us and that will be coming. God, we pray for your presence, that you would remind us to lean on your promises and you would help your presence to be palpable, that we might know you are with us in them. As we persevere and finish our race, we love you. In Jesus' name. Amen.